Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 22 with Dr. Nicole LaPera. You know, when I imagined our marriage in the early days, I imagined two people welded together into some sort of combined existence. Ten years, ten years has taught me the secret of a successful marriage. It's a funny business. One sees the whole of the other person. You see even that part of them that they don't see themselves, and, and presumably they see that hidden part of you. One ends up knowing more about one's partner than they know about themselves. And it can be pretty tough to keep quiet about it. So you have to, you have to come to an accommodation, an arrangement, a, a, a deal, if you like, to take the rough with the smooth. But the extraordinary thing is, down there in the rough, in the long reeds of difficulty and pain, that is where you find the treasure. My partner, while I want to strangle her many times, was objective enough that what she was seeing wasn't as colored by emotions and by suppressed emotions and by childhood experience, right, that I was. So while I hated it, others can offer us that objectivity that we don't have in the moment. Mm -hmm. Though once we cultivate that in ourselves, we can begin to be, be that observer for ourselves and to create choice then so that we can acknowledge our ever-changing needs. I never really understood how those situations when I was growing up, how they would go on to impact my life in every relationship until I started falling in love, you know? And I started realizing, mm -hmm. oh, I'm addicted to emotional chaos. And so it, it took a really long time to even peel back the layers. A lot of us have a lot of beliefs that are keeping us stuck, possibly, of the things that happened to me will always be with me, and they likely will and there's still healing that can be done. And you can still make choices that can shift or change the way you experience your current reality. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration Podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In today's episode, we're bringing you Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's one of the brightest minds in the field of psychology, and she provides education and insights to more than 3.2 million individuals through her Instagram account alone, which goes by the handle, The Holistic Psychologist. If you don't follow her on the gram, I highly recommend you go check her out. Nicole trained at Cornell University and got her PhD in clinical psychology. And today's episode, at its core, is focused around our relationship with ourselves and how that goes on to set the tone for our relationships with everything and everyone around us. We go in depth about how the earliest stages of life directly impact our patterns into adulthood and how to empower ourselves to break old cycles that may be holding us back or keeping us stuck. We delve deep into how addiction, emotional chaos, and disassociation can actually be the nervous system's attempt to regulate itself. And then we delve deep into emotional triggers, codependency, trauma bonds, and how learning about our inner child can actually help us establish stronger boundaries and healthier relationships. If you listen to season one's episodes with Dr. Bruce Lipton, Dr. Bruce Perry, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and Dr. Shafali, 
you'll realize that Nicole's work is from their school of thought and offers some of the most innovative approaches to understanding and healing from our traumas. She's also coming out with a brand new book, which I am super excited for. So I've provided a link to that below, along with a bunch of links that you guys will find very useful to this episode. I'm so excited to get your feedback on this one, fam. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Make sure you tell every single person that you know and love about this show because it would mean the world to our team and it would help us medspire more individuals like yourself. And no matter where you are in the world, you can tag us on Instagram and we'll start a conversation with you. Tag us in your stories, share us in your posts, and we'll make sure we reach out. And now, without further ado, let the medspiration begin. Dr. Nicole LaPera, welcome to the Medspiration Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce you one of my greatest medspirations when it comes to learning about the psychology of the human experience. Nicole, my wife and I, we've been following your educational posts on Instagram since 2018, and I want to thank you for how much your posts have taught me about understanding my own brain, my relationship with myself, how my childhood upbringing has a direct relationship to how I connect with everything and everyone around me. So before we jump into things, can you please introduce yourself to our audience out there? Yeah, absolutely. And now thank you so much for your support. I know we were talking beforehand, you and I connected quite early on when you said 2018, I believe that's when I first began the Instagram yep. portion of my journey. So I appreciate your your support and the resonance um, that you've been feeling with the work and hearing the work that you and your wife do. It's incredible to continue to meet the other humans that you know are having these insights and awarenesses and hearing that my work adds to your own experience of understanding in your own world is everything. So thank you, thank you. So yeah, who am I? As a human, I think I'm like many other people walking this journey, you know, with my own struggles for me. Anxiety was the name of my life, pretty much really locked in patterns. What, well, what I would come to define over time as patterns. So I started my journey as a human, as an anxious human, and as one of those people that just knew what I wanted to do when I grew up, which is I wanted to be a psychologist. So I'm going to really keep the story short and sweet. Flash forward to me now being a psychologist, still an anxious human, uh, still very much stuck. (laughs) in all of the ways, you know, in my symptoms, but outside of that, in my patterns, in my habits, in the things that I did every day. And by the time at this point, I was in my 30s, I came to realize that some of the things that I was doing every day, especially in my relationships, weren't satisfying. They weren't producing the word that I think we're all searching for, fulfillment, right? However, I started to also look from the outside perspective and it was confusing to me because I was checking so many boxes of things that should be fulfilling to me in life Mm -hmm. and they weren't. So as a result of what I now very lovingly refer to as my dark night of the soul, which, you know, for me is just an accumulation of living out of alignment. That's the simplest way I define it. Um, I went under, I kind of underwent, if you will, my own healing journey, really understanding like you now are doing for yourself and many others, the impact that the past had on me, the role that was playing and keeping me stuck. And also the role that was playing in my anxiety and through my own healing, through my own application of what for me coming through the clinical system training as a clinical psychologist were new school were new tools, were new informations. Mm-hmm. I began to employ, you know, new new 
shifts, new changes in my day-to-day life, and I got better. So now flash forward even more in time, I'm now a human who is professing for anyone who wants to listen, this alternate journey, these alternate tools, this alternate information that I think so many of us can now utilize to actually create the change we've been looking for for this this long. That's amazing. So how long did it take you to become a clinical psychologist? Too long. I think my program was about seven years time Mm -hmm. um, from start to finish. I I received two years of master's. I think the PhD portion was about five years. And then you have several years like similar to what you're doing now. For us, it's called uh, internship, pre and postdoctoral. So then I had all of this supervision. I also began to fancy through my travels of of clinical work, uh, the psychoanalytic world. So I signed off for some extra training. So, you know, upwards about a decade, pretty much um, of studying, of clinical, of casework, but also of doing, of learning, of meeting supervisors and learning different ways of of practicing. So a long time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, same here. I want to start with attachment and neurodevelopment. What can you tell us about attachment and brain development for kids in the earliest years of their life? Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about, and when you talk about our past and our conditioning and our patterning, you hear me talk a lot about that. So oh, yeah. usually that brings most of us to the earliest years of our life, right? To coming to this planet, to becoming human, if you will. And often, right, that's happening in systems. For most of us, the most immediate system is whomever the caregivers are around us. I know we have all different iterations of whose care we're in, but I know also something, we need to be in someone's care. When we arrived on this planet, we are in a complete state of dependency. We cannot meet our physical needs. We cannot meet our emotional needs. And we cannot meet, I believe that humans have a spiritual component, you know, a different essence, something deeper, hard to define. Mm-hmm. We're just learning how to like navigate in that sphere as well. So we come to the planet in a very state of dependency. So what we usually find ourselves in is in a relationship, like I said, with different iterations of caregivers. It could be one, it could be a whole family system. It might be extended family, and then we have communities, et cetera. We are learning. We are being modeled. We are being directly told, you know, kind of directives of of humaning. And we are experiencing life in relationship with these people. And all the while, as of course, I'm sure all of your listeners know, our brain is developing. So we are what I like to refer to as a sponge. We are in a complete sponge light state. So the impact of all of these experiences are very impactful. Mm -hmm. They are laid down in what I call, we all love the computer analogy. We love to hate it. I think some of us, the computer analogies, they're like the programs that run us or that we in that autopilot state, right? Without conscious awareness, we allow to run us into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So to, to answer your question, all of our brain regions, all of our programming, even our neural development, right? The way our neurons are firing and wiring, creating those programs are being formed very, very, very early on in life. And then, like I said, become the tracks that we're just kind of reliving over and over again. That's why when, as a lot of us become aware and begin to maybe observe ourselves in adulthood, we do see what for many of us are those archaic patterns of those things that we saw others do in our childhood directly or indirectly, or we saw ourselves do as a means of coping. We see the same thing repeating. And this could be if you're listening and you're in your teenage years, your 20s. I mean, there's, you know, people that are awakening in their 50s, 60s, 70s that are like, damn, I 
I have been living the same more or less patterning. So that all goes back to that neural development at that very early time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the way that you talk about downloading programs. So we had uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton on our podcast. Uh, He's the author of The Biology of Belief. I'm very familiar with Dr. Bruce Lipton and very jealous that you got the chat with him. That's incredible. (laughs) He's become a personal friend. And I love the way that he says that the first from the third trimester of pregnancy to like seven or eight years old, we're really just downloading all the programs from around us. And we're, we're more in a hypnotic state at that point. So even passive learning. So it's not even things that you're witnessing. Like you're just a sponge soaking it up and you're downloading all these programs. And, you know, before we delve into the deep stuff into this podcast, I, I think it's really important to just understand that the earliest patterns of connection, they affect our behaviors into adulthood, right? That's where I kind of want to go into something that I learned from you on your YouTube channel. You've mentioned the four types of attachment styles that are typically created from your caregiver. Can you please delve deeper into those? Yeah, so let me just simplify, you know, what I mean. So back to that state of dependency. We have physical needs, like I said, we have emotional needs and we have spiritual needs. So those of us who aren't familiar with the world of the spirit, The way I define those three core needs in that area is to be, and I believe this is universal, any being on this planet that defines himself as a human has these, in my opinion, or to my observation. I believe that too. Thank you. Our spirits (laughs) all deeply desire to be seen, to be heard, and to have the space to authentically express themselves, whatever that might be in any given moment. My my feeling, my belief, my way of being, just to be me. That's our spiritual realm, right? So yeah. going back to the state of dependency, this is where it gets really complicated and where attachment comes in. As a evolutionary creature who has a physical body that we need to sustain life in, we become very patterned in how we get those needs met, right? So an infant cries and then a parent, hypothetically, if they're you know not neglectful, comes and cares for the physical needs. And then we learn how to integrate that into our own. Okay, so when I'm hungry, I eat, I eat this thing, I don't eat that thing. Obviously, there's an incredible amount of variation in how we're modeled to care for our physical being. Emotionally, we are wired. I'm sure listeners might have heard this. We are wired for connection or so we call it. I, I always talk about evolution because so much information is, is kind of gained in understanding that. The way we proliferated as a species was because we, we bonded together mm-hmm. in clans and groups, some oh, yeah. tribes, right? So we have division of labor. There's also something psychological that happens when we're bonded with even just one other individual. We feel <laughs> safer and we have stress relieving capabilities, right? So again, we are wired, we are geared to need other humans, and there's a psycho emotional benefit. So now back in childhood, right, we begin to create, outside of just getting our physical needs met, relationships with caregivers, right? We relate to them. And there's when we get this emotional, hypothetical needs met. Again, an incredible amount of variation in the experiences that we've had relating other humans. Oh, yeah. Same thing spiritually, right? If having the space. So what begins to happen in childhood, because we're a sponge, because we're taking it all in and because we're incredibly adaptive, mm-hmm. we learn to the best of our ability, in, even in the most compromising situations, how to maintain getting those needs met. So how to show up and make sure our physical body is taken care of to the best of our caretaker's ability, emotionally. And this is where it gets really complicated and why I define something as spiritual trauma. Okay. We learn how to show up in a relationship to continue to feel connected to that person, even if it's not in our authenticity, even yeah. if it's not right, allowing ourselves to be seen and heard. This is where patterns such as people pleasing, 
right? Mm-hmm. And caretaking. And we learn how to simply play a role. Mm-hmm. So why am I talking about this? This is what we're talking about when we talk about attachment. We learn how to attach and relate to other humans through all of those means, through all of those, you know, experiences beginning so very early on. And what we then do is we repeat those patterns. So you might be the little child. So I'll use myself as an example with my mother, Mm -hmm. who is very emotionally distant from me because she herself could not had a mother who was emotionally distant, could not control and contain and navigate her own emotions. So Mm. any of my emotions overwhelm. So right, my mother is emotionally distant to me. What I learned to do is I learned how to show up to feel as close to my mom as I can. Mm -hmm. So what that looked like for me is never showing up with any overwhelming emotion, that's for sure. So I became the child who never showed my mom a feeling. Is everything okay? Sure, yeah. Even when it wasn't, because I learned at a very early age that my feeling would cause my mom's overwhelm and then disconnection, because that's Mm -hmm. how she dealt with it. And I don't want to lose mom. I also learned how to show up to get what attention she was able to give me, right? So there's where seen, heard, understood. I mean, authenticated comes in. I learned how to what I call perform. I learned the things to do, which for me were, you're not gonna be shocked to hear this, achieve academically. Oh yeah. Funny you asked me how long I went to school, (laughs) how that applies, right? Because I learned that good grades, my mom praised me. She was present. She said, you did great. And she also loved when I played sports. She Uh loved when, and I was very good at softball. So I learned how to show up as the person who could maintain my mom's love. And then what happened, as a lot of us do, we continue to show up in that same way, not just with mom for me or with the caregiver in which this was developed. We show up in all of our relationships the same exact way. And that's what attachment is, right? So back to these definitions, you Mm -hmm. know, there's been amazing attachment researchers who have actually categorized different styles. So anyone listening can go and map on. Yes, we can have different styles. We can have a little bit of both. We don't fall neatly into categories or concepts. But I explained everything I did because what's really important is to observe yourself now in your current relationships and to see some of those patterns that you're bringing, right? Are you the person that is more playing roles in relationships, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe your role is to take care of others before ourselves. That's a great role that most of us like to play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And acknowledge all of the ways, right, that we're maybe not bringing our full self into our current relationships based on those early experiences. That, and that's such a big deal because, you know, I've heard multiple people say that the most important relationship we can have is with our primary caretaker. And that will go on to impact our every relationship we have. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to share your story and how that developed attachment styles for you. And maybe what the, the best and most resilient part of that is your awareness of that attachment style, um, because that allows you to adapt. Now that we've kind of laid the groundwork for the developing brain, I want to discuss childhood trauma. How does it lead into patterns and in, into adulthood? I'm going to talk, I guess, kind of traditionally. Traditionally, the way trauma has been defined, and listeners might have been might have be familiar with something called the ACEs scale, adverse yeah. childhood experience. Talk about it all the time. Yes. Great. So that in whenever that was developed, late 80s ish more recent than not, that really defined trauma as I'm just going to use the general language, even though I don't love defining things in big and little terms, but listeners might be familiar with big T trauma. 
the thing that I think traditionally we all associate with the bad event, the abuse, the neglect, the sec- whatever it is, the big bad thing or absence of that really caused the disturbance. As per, you know, whatever year that was when that came out, we kind of, as a field, agreed that those things, they typically, historically, they mapped onto the PTSD diagnosis, right? But those things we knew caused issues later in life. What we didn't know and what I'm coming to, you know, hope and offer the awareness, at least as per my belief and my experience, is that there's many more things oh, yeah. um, that cause that disturbance later in life or that cause similar even. So this is and this is why I share my story now a lot, because I didn't check. I learned all about the boxes of abuse. I learned all about the big T trauma. I learned all about PTSD. And I would sit there in classes, right, and not check any of those boxes. Mm. So I would feel really confused with why I continued, and especially because I was someone who was defined, right, as the helper, I should know better, why I was still more or less having very similar symptoms. One of which that I talk about often is my tendency and my habit of dissociating, of disconnecting with my, a lot of times I heard, yes, this association exists. It's even a diagnosis, this associative identity disorder that is most Mm -hmm. egregious, right? And again, that's only reserved for these traumas. So why, once I really came to terms with the fact that I was dissociating, because I fought that for a while. No, I'm present. I'm here because I, I, I appeared very present. No one speaking to me would really know I wasn't fully there. Yeah, Uh, I was so good at kind of compartmentalizing, which is why I became the psychologist, right? Because I could do that naturally. Yeah. Lucky me. Long story short, when I came to realize it, I was still left confused because nothing that I experienced should be right causing this degree of disconnect. Yeah. And this translated, I felt very disconnected from myself, very disconnected, therefore, from other people, from the whole. This is why I was so unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really embodying life. I was just going through the motions. Anyway, so I talk about and I talk about this expanded definition of trauma and this now spiritual realm of trauma because a lot of us are carrying those impacts and are confused, are maybe thinking something's wrong, I'm broken, why can't I, why am I struggling in this way? And that's a very, very big reason why we're struggling in this way is because there are expansive things and patterns that we can carry um, and ways that we coped, right, with those initial wounds that prevent us from actualizing or maybe even from getting our need met. So just to use a people pleaser as an example, Mm -hmm. a lot of people that are, you know, caretakers of others or the, the one who shows up consistently to care for everyone else, what they might come to realize by the time they're they're later in life is that they've lived decades where they haven't met their own needs because they haven't acknowledged them. They haven't put them first. This could be physical needs, emotional needs, right? And likely they're not showing up as an actualized person because who they're showing up likely is at is the person that is desired, that the other person wants them to be, right? So now mm-hmm. we've accumulated probably a whole lot of imbalance and disconnection based on those patterns. So the the way I adapted early, might worked earlier, doesn't necessarily work now. Now I have more tools, right? Now mm-hmm. I have more choices available. However, now I still remain, or at least I feel I remain stuck. Yeah. And you mentioned disassociation. I, I think this is really important. I'm 29 years old now, and I literally didn't discover that I had 
disassociated from my past until like last year. I discovered things about the Aces like probably a few years ago. Uh, thank God because I have great mentors. This podcast has helped a lot. And I realized I was really high up on the Aces scale. Like I, I grew up in a home where there was sexual abuse. I grew up in a home where there was suicide attempts. I grew up in a home where there was abuse in any way you can think of. And literally up until I was 28, if you asked me how my childhood was, I'd be like, I had the greatest childhood ever. Like I had the greatest parents, best support system. Really, you know, I'm privileged. So I, I never really understood how those situations when I was growing up, how they would go on to impact my life in every relationship until I started falling in love, you know, and, and, and I started realizing, mm -hmm. oh, like I have, like I'm addicted to emotional chaos. Like I yes. do all these things. Mm -hmm. Like I hated the things my father did, but then I'm repeating the things my father does. And, you know, so it, it took a really long time to even peel back the layers and realize something had happened. And, you know, my awareness of it, my objective awareness of it could help me heal. And I want to thank you for sharing your story and your vulnerability with me and the listeners now, because I highlight this because I want to acknowledge how hard and brave and vulnerable that is for many of us to tell truth to ourselves. I mean, you just <laughs> shared it with the community, the listeners, I mean, essentially the world, if you will, right? Before we get there, and this is my experience too, it is hard as hell, or at least I'll speak for myself, to admit to ourselves. And I worked with a lot of clients who, you know, are so the word I'm using the field, defend it, resistant yeah, to yeah. the to right to telling the whole experience. Doesn't mean that maybe some parts weren't good. This yeah. is not me saying we, you know, a bad experience in childhood doesn't color. I mean, for some maybe. This mm -hmm. is where I, I want to empower people to allow mm -hmm. what their experience of it is to be their reality, right? So oh, yeah. for some people, it doesn't mean that the presence of abuse or neglect or, or now that you're maybe realizing these smaller T's or spiritual traumas, as I call them, if you notice that they're there, that doesn't have to, we can be flexible. We can say, yeah, there was some good, there was some, I'm not going to use the word bad, but there was some experiences that I'm carrying, you know, wounds for, and mm -hmm. all of it was part of my experience. And to get to that step, which is why that's I'm highlighting this, right, it's the all of it. That's what's hard. Yeah. I know, speaking from my own personal experience, like I said, I didn't want to, I would have never said I was dissociated, even more so, the word I would have cringed at, codependent. Oh, I yeah. come from the most codependent household and was the most codependent human that yeah. I probably ever met, which is probably why I hated to acknowledge that to myself, right? Exactly, yeah. Anyway, no. so, acceptance, that, that, I acceptance. think, uh, the hardest thing, like my defense mechanism was being over, like overly positive all the time and just focusing on the good. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a long time until I realized that would limit me. And now it's came back full circle and it's kind of like, well, the good and the bad is a part of the whole. And that's who I am as a being. Each experience molds me into that. Yes. That as as healthcare professionals, I mean, that'll make you a better healer as well. And it, it starts with you, you know? Absolutely. So please share with us, how does trauma affect the body and the polyvagal theories? So can you tell us more? Of course. So first, you know, some of us are going to have to acknowledge painfully that we have, you know, have been carrying traumas in the okay. body, spiritual traumas, right? And so for some of us, it's welcoming and making space for all of the feelings about ourselves, about our caregivers, about our past that might come up mm -hmm. when we do that. that that's the first one. Yeah. A lot of us are carrying the body in our nervous system and in its programmed responses. 
So you sound like someone like me seeking stress and chaos. I love that. Loved it for a very long time. Needed it, right? <laughs> me too. Because, right? Because, and there's a reason that our bodies were familiar with it. It's not that we really liked it. I mean, we like which is familiar. Because yes. people listening might be like, I don't like this shit at all. This is a nightmare. Yeah. Well, it's familiar. Yep. And familiarity is the number one drive of that part of our mind that I'm always going on and on about because it's so ever powerful unless we empower ourselves, you know, beyond it, our subconscious. It believes falsely that the predictable is safe yep. because it knows what comes next. Even if what comes next, right, as a child was the back of the hand or re- neglect or the silent treatment like I would get, it knew that that was predictable. And it probably knew what happened after that when life went back to whatever it, right? That which is familiar is safe. So I talk a lot about that zone of familiarity, as I call it, because that's why a lot of us are stuck and we're stuck in living repeated cycles of the term I eat, right? Emotional addiction. Where we find ourselves, right? Day after day, week after week, staying in that same emotional frequency or range. So for you and I, it's stress. So why? A lot of it is because in childhood, one of the needs that we had was for nervous system regulation. Mm-hmm. Again, we come in a state of dependency. We cannot regulate our own nervous system as a kid. That's when a kid shrieks out, cries out an infant. We're, in, you know, we're having an activation of their nervous system. And hypothetically, the parent comes and calms. That's called co-regulation. The caveat here is to learn and to have a successful co-regulation experience with our caregivers Our caregivers need to be in regulation themselves. They need to have a regulated nervous system. What does that mean, right? A stress happens. My nervous system activates in either fight or flight, right? The sympathetic, like I I do what I need to do to take care of the threat, really simple talk. And then Mm -hmm. I go back to my baseline Mm -hmm. of the parasympathetic, the rest and digest where all life and business in my body is normal. And then the next time the stress comes, right? I activate and I come back. I have flexibility. A lot of us, when we don't have that caregiver who has flexibility in their childhood, we don't return to a baseline and we get stuck. I'm really simplifying all this, but we get stuck in one of the directions. We either get stuck in sympathetic like myself and it sounds like you stuck in Mm -hmm. fight or flight activation. Dissociation was our nervous system's attempt at regulating, right? Because our body was haywire. So it kind of removed ourselves from ourselves. That's a nervous system state attempting to re-regulate itself. Another group of individuals get stuck in hypo, in that underactive state, that listless, that lack of energy, right? So that that nervous system dysregulation, I talk about that a lot, is, is kind of around which most of our symptoms, including our patterns and our habits and relationships, as an attempt to regulate um, mm-hmm. around those points of dysregulation, like I said, that developed very early on in childhood. So as an adult, right, flashing forward, now we have to teach ourselves, our bodies, down yep. to the level of the nervous system, how to regain that flexibility that for many of us, it never had, it never developed. Exactly. Now, th- this is so important. Um, one of the things we love talking about is neuroregulation. So you know, we all get stressed out and your ability to be able to re-regulate yourself is, is really going to determine a lot. And uh, one of the things you mentioned here, it really starts getting into that intergenerational effect where if our caregivers, personal regulation, say they're in a really high stress life situation or just high stress lifestyle, they didn't learn regulation techniques from their parents. 
when we as children are dysregulated, they become more dysregulated and there's no, there's no calming you down. Next thing I want to talk about is the inner child. Uh, this was one of my greatest discoveries, and I think it's important as adults to know what the inner child is. Absolutely. So sneakily enough, Nav, we've been talking about the inner child all along. Right? Exactly. The inner child lives in our subconscious mm -hmm. and becomes the repository right, of, for what many of us are, the conditioned ways that we've learned to meet mm -hmm. all of those needs physical, emotional, spiritual. The inner child is also where we house all of our suppressed emotions, the emotions that maybe because this is the term, right? We have an emotionally immature parent. We are all emotionally immature in a lot of ways, yeah, which just I, means I can't handle my own emotions. So I become so overwhelmed by others, the world at large, right? I just don't know how I don't have the emotional resilience to cope and keep it moving at mm -hmm. a time. So what that means for a lot of us and going back to that parent who might yell or say something mean, I share this. It's not to blame parents or to say you're a bad quote unquote yeah. parent. It's to explain why often it's not intentional in those moments, exactly. yeah, right? The parent is subconsciously just reacting from their place of overwhelm. Half of them, majority of them might not even be aware if you were to say, hey, this happened, that they might not even be able to be aware that that's how they navigated their feelings. So anyway, a lot of us, again, have messages that we've received or have received around emotions in childhood. And when we don't allow our emotions to express because we don't have that moment of co-regulation, even further, maybe some of us have had direct messages or indirect messaging given to us around emotions, right? Don't feel, don't express weakness. Don't express sadness that's vulnerable. Don't, or... Yeah. Maybe it's not direct things. Sometimes some of us were actually told that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we were just made to feel that. When you start crying, right, your your caregiver kind of always leaves the room, right? So before yeah. you know it, you're going to associate crying with not a positive thing because no one's available to you when you're sad, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is we don't express those emotions and then they're what they're called suppressed. So then again, we develop all of the ways we don't express those emotions into adulthood. And this is what constitutes the inner child is that whole patterned way of being through which we're viewing our daily experience. This is why life becomes like Groundhog's Day for many of us. We're stuck wow. in cycles. I become an adult that because that inner child is alive and is the lens in which I'm viewing a lot of my daily experiences, I'm reacting in those same old ways. Mm -hmm. You brought up suppression of emotions and my wife and I were always talking about how every range of emotion, like having a spectrum of it is healthy, especially if you have good boundaries and you're able to discuss them. And one thing I noticed just growing up as a male in my household, at least it was like, I wasn't supposed to express weakness. I wasn't supposed to cry. If I felt hurt by something rather than talking about it, it'd be like, Oh, forget about that. Like, you don't, you shouldn't feel that. And like, you know, those things may seem like a little bandaid when you're going through it. But I started realizing later on in life, every single one of those things that I was suppressing, I wouldn't have control over when they would come out. So sometimes I'd have like an outburst yes. that yes. would be like so out of line in the present moment. People would be like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> yes. Including myself, because afterward, I'd be reflecting like, what's going on, man? And it, it wasn't until I started realizing, wow, I've suppressed a lot of stuff. I need to be able to discuss it. And even, I mean, like what we're saying right now, one of my favorite musicians is Jay-Z. And he says, you can't heal what you don't reveal. And that's one of the, the most powerful thing that we can do is 
have this type of honesty in a communication together because I think it makes a big difference. Now that we're on this concept of an inner child, and I love the way that you uh, discuss it, can you describe a wounded inner child? Because we've kind of been describing that as well. Yeah, well, you just you just describe it yourself. Those moments, right, <laughs> where we go, I'm going to use unconscious to ourselves when we just kind of elicit. I know I live them, right? When I say the thing, and then later I'm like, I don't know if I really meant that, or I feel yeah. the thing, and I'm later I'm like, oh. This, I, I use a perfect example. This came to my awareness when after being with my current partner for years in, so she saw a lot of my cycles, I was losing my shit about, uh, it was a long story, but around my cat who I could not find. Oh, wow. But the way I was behaving was like, you know, kind of, I was off the wall. I was screaming. Yeah. I was, I was out of character. I was not, I'm not that way typically. And like, similar to you, it's like, where the hell did all that come yeah. from? Yeah. And afterward, and as a lot of us do, I, not all of us feel, but I felt bad about myself. I felt bad that I said the things I did to her that I didn't. And when I offered an apology, this was once I calmed down, when we can have re access, right. To, oh, wow. Shit. What was that? What happened? And I, yeah. you know, brought to the table, my sorry, my apology. And she said to me, that's okay. I actually, this was a really pivotal statement. I actually don't think you really meant it. And that really struck with me because she spoke to something inside that was true in that moment that wow. I didn't really mean it. And I really began to look at that and dive into that. And so when do we know our inner child? When we're activated, when we're having a really big feeling is a great time to look. This is not me saying that, yes, we have a sensor in a system that when we're violated, we will all, it's called intuition. We always have the gift of that. A lot right. of us have to reconnect with that, right? When I'm saying this, I hope you're not, no one's hearing me say that we shouldn't feel about anything. Of course, yeah. we have limits. When we're violated, we're going to have a big feeling that we should look at. Oh, yeah. Now the question is, though, right? What are the patterns? Are we always having big feelings around the same sort of specific incident? And when you look, typically you are. Because something okay. I was going to offer earlier when you said that I was giggling to myself, it's not actually out of nowhere. Once we observe ourselves and we tell on ourselves, what we come to find is happening behind the scenes is some of us are repeating a dialogue around it in our yep. actual mind and our thoughts. These okay. things that are happening from the morning we open, the moment we open our eyes to the moment we close them at night. Don't believe me. Go look. Pay attention to how you're thinking, what you're thinking. You're gonna see that I call them narratives because they're so goddamn the you same. Have oh, you yeah. have them, right? So. You might be surprised when you blow up, but if you start to pay attention, when you start to pay attention, maybe it's not as much of a surprise because you've been priming yourself for it. You've mm -hmm. been repeating or assigning meanings to things that are happening in your life. So by 5 p.m. when you're screaming at your partner, you might have had 10 confirmations of your feeling yep. throughout the day that you don't, you weren't even aware of. Oh yeah. So we need to begin to observe those things. And like I said, what patterns, patterns in our thinking. We tend to tell ourselves stories about ourselves, about others, about our world, about our relationship, about our past, about our future. They tend to be very patterned. Look at those. Look when you're feeling those activations, when you have a really big feeling, begin to watch and then see the patterns come into place. And then most of us can begin to understand kind of how and why they develop. So what's the first step someone can take to start becoming more aware of these patterns? Observation, right? First and foremost, learning how to watch yourself, right? That's different from I wake up and I go into my autopilot that's gonna run my day, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it is pattern interrupting, right? So practical tools, set alarms on your phone, reminders. When that alarm goes off, check in with yourself. What am I doing? 
What am I thinking? What am I feeling? The more data points for all the scientists out there that love data, the more data points you have, you begin to now create a story. And you you might be surprised. Some of you might not. You might be like, yeah, I'm patterned. These are all the patterns. These are all the ways I'm stuck. Some of you might be surprised to see how patterned you are, to see that every time that alarm goes off, you're doing more or less the same thing. Maybe you're thinking more or less the same narrative story. Maybe you're feeling more or less the same way. So self observation is really where we begin to create space for a new what's next, for a new future story that's different than our past. A lot of us like to blow by this first step, which is why I always pause on it. We have to observe first because when we're observing ourselves and we're seeing, we're now in a new part of our brain. Yeah. We're in the, right, we're in the conscious part of our brain. We're not in that subconscious anymore. And the conscious part of our brain is where our mind is where choice is even a possible. So we have to be to prime ourselves to create the opportunity to do the step two, which I'm going to offer next, which is what we always want to rush to. But we need to create that space first or else our autopilot is going to keep calling our shots for us. The more space we have, all of life is going to continue. Our patterns and our impulses to live those patterns are going to be there. Our thoughts are still going to present themselves, right? Those narratives, those old stories are still going to come up in all of those same situations. I might even still feel the way I used to feel or I'm used to feeling, but I need to start creating new choices towards something that's going to change and shift in the future. And then the more I make those choices, the more I create actual change. So we observe, we create the space to eventually begin to activate into new choices that lead to new lifestyles, that lead to a new person, a new future. Yep. There's so much there. Um, Do you meditate? Yeah. So I've had an interesting relationship with meditation. When I first met the concept of mindfulness-based meditation when I was in my early 20s, I, like a lot of people, was very overwhelmed by the concept of sitting quietly, by the experience of sitting quietly, by my racing mind. And I share this because I think a lot of people, when they're introduced to a sitting meditation practice, they get overwhelmed. It's not familiar enough. Yeah, yeah. Quite honestly, some of the things that I feel when I stopped, when old me stopped, I didn't want to see and feel and hear about myself. I was uncomfortable. So I share that because then it evolved. My practice evolved into learning how to just be a little more conscious in my daily life. So for what that can mean for listeners is just learning how to connect with the present moment through the vehicle of our senses, right? That That is a grounding foundational practice for many of us to just live consciously. So before I started sitting on a cushion quietly, I began to do that. I made it a point. I lived in New York when I began to first experimenting with these tools that when I was walking in New York, Right. I would have me. Maybe I would have music on to drown out the the sounds of New York City. But I wouldn't. I would try to just be present to walking, to looking around the sights, not to my mind, which is where I spent most of my time, which is why I was so dissociated. So that meant. How does my body feel walking today? I did a lot of walking in New York. So some days it was sore, other right? So senses. Can I just be in my body? Can I smell the air of New York City? Sometimes I wanted to, sometimes I right. I'm being silly, but so I evolved my practice because sitting felt overwhelming. I began just to create what we call conscious moments in my daily life. Beautiful. So now, flash forward probably about a decade plus, now each and every morning, I do have a sitting practice. I don't, however, lose the consciousness throughout my day. And I say that because that's incredibly important. Listeners who are aware of all of the research now that exists, thankfully, on meditation and meditation practices know, I'm sure, 
that there are structural changes that remain. So outside of a sitting practice. However, what I know also lurks around the corner of a sitting practice once I leave my meditation room proverbial door, if you will, yeah. is that autopilot. Oh, yeah. So some of us are meditating on a cushion and then going right back out into autopilot living and still remaining stuck and then looking at the cushion and wondering, why aren't you helping? It's when we have to do both, when we have when we have to learn how to live consciously. And like I said earlier, the way we can begin to do that is first observe how conscious or unconscious you're already living and mm -hmm. then create maybe one new moment in a day where when that alarm goes off, not only are you going to check in, you're going to bring your attention back to the conscious moment, which if you're like me, will be lost the next yeah. time a thought goes. But yeah. the more you practice, right, exactly. we're harnessing now neuroplasticity and mm -hmm. the fact that we can actually create that rewiring, strengthen our prefrontal cortex and make it a bit easier as oh, time yeah. goes on. It is a muscle. This is very, very important. And it's, it's actually revolutionary for me. It was the same thing. I remember reading Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. And I got introduced to this concept of watching the thinker. This is the same time I'm like reading Deepak Chopra's uh, Spiritual Laws of Success. So, you know, I'm like really starting to and I'm, I'm probably in my late teenage years at this time. But the, the first thing that really helped me turn things or change things was just watching my thought patterns without judging them and yes. just noticing the redundancies, no, noticing okay, like I have this type of negative thought pattern that comes up every single time this event occurs, you know? So how can someone start healing from codependency? I speak those sort of lists and those, those symptoms, if you will, for lack of a better word, with such ease <laughs> because I, like I said, over, me too, right? Yeah. Like, I, and I'm still me. There's still moments where, you know, I see those old patterns oh, yeah. coming up where I'm worried more about someone else and I don't want to say this thing. And I consistently have to, especially with my, my current part, I, I consistently have to challenge myself you know, through that. So I share that. I share my story, you know, not just endlessly talk about myself, though, because I get it. I relate and I know how it is to be stuck in those patterns. I know what it's like to be kind of in the middle of the work. And I'm here to tell you that the middle of the work is life for the yeah. people, right? Yeah. Like, a, like, I'm still looking right for that end where a lot of my habits right, too. are shifting other ways of being are becoming more familiar to me, more natural now. So this not, isn't to say, right, my brain is now firing differently, like you and I have been talking about all along. That's so, really reassuring coming from you. Because uh, yes. I feel the same. So it's, it's good to know. <laughs> good. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm still in the middle of it, though things do get easier. And I and I I'm at awed by myself so often because I remind myself there are and I suggest everyone does this as well. I'm going to wrap back into the first step that you probably heard me say before on this. But while you're doing this, remind yourself along the way of, oh, wow, this was a moment where five years ago, I would have responded, reacted yeah. so differently. I make it a conscious, intentional point. Actually, every day when I journal, I do a practice of creating intention to change through something called future self-journaling. I still do it every day. Every day, I remind myself, one line in it is always to take a moment to observe myself through the day. I try to build upon that and do more moments. And one of the things I make it a point to observe are when I do something new. And when I do something new now, almost without thought, because I can still remember that old me wouldn't have done that. 
would have overreacted, would have snapped, would have gone into fight or flight, would, you know, whatever, the list is endless. And I, I don't. And it almost was so, I didn't even remember that wow. there used to be. So do that. So the first step, observe, like we've been talking about all along, observe and really build that conscious mind, whatever practice it is, a minute in meditation, which I know can sound like an hour or build consciousness into your day. And then you become, you, you're already empowering yourself now toward that choice, creating that space. See for yourself, see your patterns yourself, see how you feel living in those patterns, tune into your emotional experience. For a lot of us, that's breaking a habit of not being connected exactly. to our emotional experience. Be honest. If you are someone who has what I call emotional addiction, I know I was, I was a stress and chaos. I oh, would yeah. manufacture, yeah. I would manufacture, I even still try to deal with my partner, arguments. When I'm agitated, I could yeah. take anything that's happening in my given moment and either take it to a thought that I'm going to spin, stress myself out and activate, or I can actually pick. I can start, and usually my partner, yeah. sorry, is the person who's on the other end of that, right? I can oh, yeah. say the rude thing back. I can do the thing. And now, oh, I'm stressed out again. Now I'm I'm in an activated state. And if I'm honest, I did that. I did that because yeah. something inside felt oh, off. Yeah. And mm -hmm. instead of identifying and, and sitting in it or taking myself for a walk or doing the many things that I now know help me when I feel off, that's different for each of us. It might be a walk. It might be a bath. It might be a massage, whatever. It might be something, right? Finding the things to do. So instead of doing that, right? I did that old thing that I do. Oh. I reacted to it yeah. and I caused the stress. So for a lot of us, when we become observational, we become honest and it's hard. Mm -hmm. And some of us then want to, you know, mourn ourselves what yeah. happened in childhood, right? We have feelings about what we're seeing, honor all of that. For most of us, that's the first time maybe we're honoring the mm -hmm. fullness of our actual experience and not only that one version of our story. Beautiful, yeah. And then we become, then we be, this is why I'm always speaking out against and you'll never see me write kind of universal plans of healing where we're all doing yeah. the same you know, 10 steps because they're not the same. And in that process, now you, you get to see your inner child. You get to see your patterns. You get to see how you meet your physical, emotional, spiritual needs. And then you get to now decide if that's working. Sometimes it might be, sometimes it might not be. And then in that process, now you've created the space to make new choices, string together enough new choices, you change, mm -hmm. and then don't forget to notice, like I was saying earlier, that process. Yeah. Don't forget to see in every moment in real time now how you are different. Mm -hmm. And that's going to keep you motivated to move forward and create more and more change. That's so intelligent. Uh, infusing gratitude into your your progression. And, you know, I've been blessed. Uh, my wife and I, we've been together for like seven years. So she's definitely watched like, like the debauchery turn into like, you know, more consciousness slowly but surely. And, you know, we do have those moments where it's like, wow, man, like six years ago, we would have been like yes. at each other's hairs. But now we're like, laughing at it and we're like you know and infusing that gratitude i mean it's been scientifically proven that gratitude it, it that reward that you give yourself like you're reinforcing behavior that's that's actually forming your brain in a way that will make it easier to do in the future right yes, so yeah and i did want to add here because your posts are so good how to heal from codependency these are your words this is from your posts set boundaries with self and others spend time alone spend time doing just for us, creating, dancing, exploring, spend time in inner reflection, journaling. We're going to get into your journal because uh, it's one of the most helpful things in the world. 
uh, meditating, breathing, learn what our needs are, asking your inner child what we need. And that's, those are some things that I actually never asked myself until very recently. You know, a lot of the things you're touching on, maybe people are hearing it for the first time and it could be any stage of life, honestly. Absolutely. And I, and I commend every stage of life that looks, that attempt right that creates this this change because it's hard you know i have a lot of people that are you know upwards in years and are you know i'm it's too old it's too long i'm too it's done it's hard to believe when you hear people say this but in my opinion it is never too late and i honor you know everyone who's on this journey regardless of of where you are. I agree. I couldn't agree more. So what does a healthy relationship actually look like? Yeah, absolutely. So it's right. Like we're talking about creating that space, allowing myself and others to express the ever changingness of their beingness, if you will, to. So for some, that's physical separations. That's creating time and space where you can be away from other people. You know, those of us that are codependent, I know for me, the idea of a weekend without plans was a living nightmare. There was not in my 20s, there was not a weekend where I didn't have something I could do. Living in New York helped. There was always something to do, meaning alone. I even see Evans and my sister of this, you know, in her and she's 15 years older than me. I'm going to be 38. So she's right. And there's still, I hear her often say and have said historically, you know, when I'm alone in the home, I don't like it. You know, so for a lot of us, that means just alone time. How do I be without another human? How do I tune into asking myself what I want to do on Saturday and not what Janet, you know, has in plan for me to do on Saturday? So some of it is like that physical separation where, and I know for parents listening, I don't have children. I can't imagine what it's like on all the in all the ways to care yeah. for another human. I'm sure you have you have your hands full. That doesn't mean though that you have to be indebted 24 hours a day to that human. That means that right there might be some space you need to create where you can be just you, right? If you obviously have the resources available to you, or the child is elsewhere at the time where you can safely do this. You know, or you're doing it before the child's awake in the morning or when they go to bed at night. But you time where you can just be you is incredibly, incredibly important. Oh, yeah. For, for more of us than not, this also means emotionally being able to tease apart my feelings versus someone else's without viewing it through. Well, how will this be for someone else? How is this? How does this person feel? Are they happy? Then I hear this so often. And for many years when I was in private practice working one on one, which I no longer do, I would hear many of my clients creating new relationships couple weeks into newly dating someone, right? Talking about the new thing and maybe with intense excitement. And what I always would hear is a narrative more focused on whether or not he, she, or they like me. Are they calling me again? What do they think? Do they like me? Are we going out again? They seem happy. They, you know, they don't like whatever version of it was. And what I didn't hear really much talk or think about in these sessions was what the person in front of me thought of the date of the human that they were cultivating a relationship with of their experience. Exactly. And so for some of us, that's what it looks like. Carving out the time to say, okay, regardless of whether or not Nav likes me or not, how did I feel about him? Let me see how, how this felt, you know? And then, okay, obviously it's devastating. If I, if I come to the conclusion that I like and they come to the conclusion that they don't like, that hurts, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the times what we're trying to avoid. Oh, that yeah. some hurt that we experience probably very early on. Mm-hmm. But so emotionally defining ourselves as separate. We could, I could live the experience and I, 
I, I joke and I think the universe did this to me, you know, for a reason that when I talk about my partner, I could have not at our resting state when we both came into the trauma bond that was our relationship. So I'm here to also say relationships can evolve. You oh, yeah. Start in a trauma bond and evolve dynamics and experience yourself in the relationship differently over time. Oh, yeah. The trauma bond of the human that I started out with with Lolly was could not have been more opposite yeah. than me. Right. In so many ways. And that's beautiful. But you know what comes with that? There are many moments when something's happening in our immediate environment that we're both, quote unquote, experiencing together. And we both have completely different reactions emotionally. OK, we both have different experiences that brought us to that moment. Something that might not be, this is usually how it falls, yeah. is, a, is a big deal for me, isn't for her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, and a lot of us as humans gotten used to having our feelings invalidated, right? Having parents who didn't say, okay, well, you're upset. A lot of times, too, it's hard. As a parent, as someone older, as our older self, looking at our inner child, it's hard to remember how devastating not being invited to the lunch table is, or how problematic it is when your favorite blanket gets destroyed in the wash. As an adult, it's like, okay, I'll buy you a new blanket, or I don't like those friends anyway, they suck, you have other, right? You're speaking from your adult perspective awareness. As the child, as a little child in you, that was the worst day of your life. Oh yeah, for sure. Right, so this is also, a lot of us invalidate our feelings, have had our feelings invalidated, and so we desperately look around us for this concordance. So, oh, if everyone's stressed out, then I have rights to feeling my stress right now. And the realistic, that's unrealistic. It's not gonna happen. So a lot of times we find upon humans, and this is what creating that interdependence, that flexibility where doesn't mean that because Lolly's not seeing this as a big deal, it doesn't mean that she can't support me that I am. But what often Mm -hmm. happens is we kind of go at and when someone isn't having the same emotional experience that we're having, especially a partner, we kind of we're at odds and we might even be at conflict, right? Trying to like yeah. fight for our right to feel the way we're feeling. And what boundaries looks like in this context is not needing to fight for that, conserving that energy and allowing that energy now to exist, right? To maybe empathize or attempt to understand why someone else is having a different experience, right? Or to just hold space or maybe to help comfort them in their experience, even if it's not how you're having it in that moment. It's creating the definitions. And again, I'm fast forwarding a process that I know for me, I'm still working on. I'm Mm -hmm. still cultivating boundaries, allowing me to be my authentic self and create that interdependence. But this is how it begins, creating space, whether it's you're the person who just needs time away to even begin to settle into, to identify what you're feeling, because you might not know. That begins with just time within yourself, check-in moments throughout your day. And that also begins, like I said, cultivating that emotional space, that spiritual space where over time, you can feel safer to be who you are and to express who you are. I agree so much. And you know, that just reminds me of different times. Where- yeah, if, so, if someone was, if my wife was having a different experience than me, when I had worse boundaries than I have now, I'd almost feel like that would invalidate my own experience, you know? And this is this is a great example of not having boundaries, where it's like, yeah, she's having a different reaction than I am to the same thing, and now I'm mad at her because now I don't feel seen or heard because she doesn't see my side. But really what I've done there is I'm trying to control how she feels and I want her to feel the way I want her to feel so I can feel better. Yeah. But am I, am I not trying to, like I'm trying to control her, fall back, 
fall back. Control what you can control. You feel very differently than she does. She's her own person and she's her life partner. She's here to teach you other sides to this perspective. So, you know, slowly drawing that boundary and realizing I'm responsible for my own happiness. She's responsible for her own. Whether she's happy or unhappy, all I could be focused on is my own happiness and be able to provide a space. And this is this is one of the biggest things that we've learned. What's the difference between giving advice and holding space? This is a there's a big difference here. What is it? Absolutely. Um, interesting. If I were to define it as what I can tell you the difference. Um, the first thing that came to mind was intention. This is just free associative. So I haven't really given thought. I yeah. wonder if that is a difference. Well, just so to speak it through mm-hmm. holding space, right, is allowing whatever is there, whatever is whatever so whatever is happening to be what's happening Mm -hmm. right so that could be you hear from your partner you don't just use this example you don't hear from your partner you hear what their experience is right and you allow it to be what's so for them even if it's not what's so for you or what is for you giving advice right so the intention there is to allow the person to authentically express honoring the differences even honoring how you might feel about the differences that you're experiencing, right? Because that could start to bring up stuff in you. Oh, yeah. That I will contrast with the intention of giving advice, which is like you're very, you know, vulnerably and bravely acknowledging that I know I do too. A lot of people pleasing is is based in selfishness. I know that's very hard to hear. Most of us all of the time are worried about ourselves. Even the most selfless of human in a very indirect way or what we could call is worried about themselves, is serving some deep need. Maybe it's not an actual though need, right? We want to expand the way we serve that need, but that's what's actually happening. We're all living, and I know this gasp when I say it, from a very egocentric oh, yeah. view, a very us-based place, and we're all we're going to be. And to show up for others, we have to acknowledge that first and see these ways that we think we're worried about other people, because I would do it too. But really, if you just called me back sooner, my anxiety goes away. I don't give a shit what you're doing. Just make yeah. me feel better. But yeah. I make it about you. You're not considerate. You don't care. I'm sitting here. Who, who the hell do you think you are living your life over there, right? Yeah. Really, I just want you to do what I want so that I can feel better and then maybe forget about you and go about my day. Very true. That's very right? true. So yep. and a lot of us, a lot of us live those patterns and we have to acknowledge, you know, that role that we're playing and creating the space for people to have different perceptions. So Advice giving is usually, like I said, aimed at trying to change what is usually through feeling, right? Usually through the behavior of another doing or not doing differently, attempting to change. So intent, I guess, if we really want to simplify where the intention of holding space is allowing authentic expression, which is the harder path. (laughs) And, and, you know, once you try both, you realize which one works much better because when you love someone a lot, you want their safety. You don't want them to feel bad. And when you don't, when you don't have boundaries, you're really set on this. You're like, I want to be the protector. I want to be there. You don't have to feel bad. It's kind of, well, I'm actually speaking, um, what my parents taught me, you know? So it's funny that we're talking about it right now. And what I realized that did in my relationship was anytime my wife would be like, you know, I'm hurt by this, or I'm upset by this, by this, whether it had anything to do with me or something else, my instant reaction would be, okay, how do I fix this? You know, and how do I give her advice to fix this? And actually it was your own Instagram post that you said advice comes from a place of anxiety and fear-based desire to control a situation. Dude, 
that's where I was coming from. And it was my, my anxiety that she would feel unsafe, you know? And then you say holding space is a result of emotional maturity and self-awareness, letting it be. And, and what I realized is when I just be quiet and I just listen for the sake of listening, um, she's smart enough, intelligent enough to speak on it and figure it out all by herself. And I didn't have to do anything. It's more effortless doing that. It's just more effort to try and listen and not give advice, you know? Absolutely. That's really big and boundaries. So what are some um, perfect examples you could give on how someone can start setting boundaries if they don't know what they are yet? Notice if you have them, right? Notice how you're showing up in your relationships. You know, a lot of times it comes in instances where requests are made, you know, when that Mm -hmm. person calls up, are you available? Can you do, you know, notice, just notice, notice how you are boundaries, usually in relationship. That's kind of where the arena in which we want to begin to notice, right? Notice how you choose to spend your time, your resources, your energy, your emotions. Who do you tell things? Who don't you tell things? They're a boundary too. As children, I think a lot of us have the impression that any thought that goes through our mind, we need to expose to someone, right? We can have a boundary within ourselves. Some things are thoughts for ourselves and we get to decide not to say that we won't choose to share them, but a lot of us have this implicit idea that we have to continuously like share. We're boundaryless between our internal world and our external world. And maybe we feel shameful even for what we see in our minds. We can have thoughts or neurons that are firing. They can be outrageous. I know I have outrageous thoughts. A lot of us assign so much meaning, uh, so much value, you know, that we feel badly um, in that way. So sometimes we need to define boundaries, not, not only in relationship with, with ourselves, you know, do I have boundaries, you know, and something that I, that applies to loving, to reparenting that is in this conversation, loving discipline, right? Do I keep promises to myself? Do I have boundaries with myself? Even though, you know, there are some things that I, on one hand, maybe I would want to do in any given moment, Do I use that higher self to make that decision based on what's best? Sometimes I honor it and I do what I want, whatever I'm feeling. And other times I pull back and I say, well, you know, doing what I want in this moment, you know, might mean, you know, I I do this thing a little too late and it might affect my sleep and maybe I don't want that to happen for tomorrow. Okay, now I get choice. So sometimes it's boundaries within our own worlds, like our own internal individual experiences, right, that we need to enhance a bit before we then put boundaries in our relationships. And mm-hmm. we look, we look, we have all of the data for what life, you know, kind of what we've been carrying available to us at any moment if we look. And that's why I empower humans, or I hope to, empower, empower individuals to look themselves, not to outsource. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be helpful. My partner, while I want to strangle her many times, was <laughs> objective enough that what she was seeing wasn't as colored by emotions and by suppressed emotions and by childhood experience, right? That I was. So while I hated it, others can offer us that objectivity that we don't have in the moment. Mm -hmm. Though once we cultivate that in ourselves, we can begin to be be that observer for ourselves and to create choice then so that we can acknowledge our ever-changing needs as we age. One of the hardest things I think to develop in life is how do you draw boundaries between yourself and other people without upsetting them? Is there a way to do it? If boundaries are changing in relationships. So if there was a dynamic where you are the person who always says yes, Mm -hmm. and you start to say no, Mm -hmm. at minimum, it's going to be a surprise. 
because that person, just like your mind does, it anticipate it. You've said yes every other time. Yeah, There's what an happened? expectation that you're going to say yes again. And when you don't, at minimum, like I said, our expectation is violated. So there might be mm-hmm. some version of surprise reaction, which we can read into. We can assign so many meanings to that surprise. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and some of us are gifted with other reactions outside of surprise. I know I heard my fears about what it would be to set a boundary coming from a boundaryless household. I always was afraid it was selfish. One of the things I shouldn't do this. And you know what I heard from that same family when I did it? That it Yourself. Was self- that it was yeah. selfish. Because that's what they believe. So that was, that was not the confirmation I wanted to hear. So some of us, right, we just violate expectation and we get surprised. Other times we do get to hear not positive reactions from people. And that's okay, right? Because it's up to us to decide. I believe that universally selfishness has got some bad street cred. I don't think it's selfish to self-care. I think it's actually necessary to actually be able to give of self to others back to those endless resources that we don't have. They go away if we don't conserve. We can't give at any time. A lot of us, you know, have to have to learn how to shift and change narratives, create new habits. Some of us are going to get those negative reactions, especially in relationships that have predated this now evolution in us. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that we lose all of these relationships. What can happen on the other side is avoiding what is an inevitable killer of relationships, which is resentment. Yes. I show up long, if I show up for other people long enough before I know it, I am enraged even at other people and it's not other people it's it's me i have to look and we do this this is why breakups can happen sometimes yeah. it's you yeah. you're wrong for me i'm not to say not to say that you were right for me but maybe to say you know that it was me i said yes too many times and now i'm mad at you and i'm sorry i have to look at me and say you know what if I started saying no when I meant no, maybe this relationship could evolve into something that's much more sustainable. So while boundaries are hard and there's all different types of kickback, some of our kickback lives in our mind. Sometimes oh. no one's really saying anything about what this new thing we're doing, mm-hmm. but we're saying a whole lot in our minds about how terrible it is, what they're probably thinking. That's not going to be helpful either. No, I agree completely. It's such a paradox because sometimes it might seem like not having a boundary, people pleasing right away is like a short, quick fix. But like you said, in the long run, it can lead to resentment and it can lead to the destruction of a, a relationship or friendship versus, you know, creating a boundary initially might be uncomfortable. But if there's one thing I have learned is like the more aware I become of creating boundaries, it's an investment into the long term future of those relationships and my relationship with self. And it's uh, it helps preserve you in the long run, you know? So now with that knowingness, like I'm, I'm more comfortable just kind of drawing the line, even if it makes someone uncomfortable, I understand, especially in my family, because I tried to be like that. I, try, I was kind of similar to you, tried drawing the boundaries and it was met with, oh, but you're not in this enmeshment of a family where we're all here for each other. But it's like, no, if we're all focused on ourselves first, our, our actual cohesive group energy would be much better, you know? So it's paradoxical to understand that. Uh, I understand it can be for many, but for me and my personal experience, I 100% agree with what you're saying. Uh, Now, what is the Future Self Journal and how can our listeners access it? Yeah, absolutely. So as as someone who does never really identified with the practice 
practice of journaling. I think traditionally, as you think of it, right, dear diary, I feel all the ways that I never really had that practice in my life. However, I knew that the act of writing could be used in many different ways and could be used very intentionally. So during my own healing, actually, I was trying to capitalize on what I was learning about neuroplasticity and, you know, how ingrained those habits are and how we need to be conscious to change them. And I came up with a, a technique that I call future self journaling to help me actually remember, be conscious and to create change in my life. So what it is now is a guided practice and I have some free prompts that if you sign up for my email list on my website, which is your holistic psychologist, for those of you on Instagram at the dot holistic psychologist, I have a link tree up that will send you right there. And do know that in the next couple months with the launch of a new website that I've been working on, there is also coming out a new edition of the Future Self Journal. So grab the prompts that are out there now and know that new ones are coming, a nice new shiny complete version that I'm really excited. And so what it is, is a daily way to integrate if you're interested, if you're like me and you don't have a journaling practice, or if you do and you want to begin a new technique of journaling, really what it's about is setting an intention to do something different, to create change. And then it's the habit. I do mine in the morning. You can do it anytime throughout your day, but it's the habit of calling to mind through the practice of written journaling, writing down the intention to do something different and what it is you're going to do different. We're harnessing two things, neuroplasticity, and we're also harnessing the fact that the mind does not know the difference between what is real and what is imagined, which is why there's endless research on mental rehearsal. If you sit there, and a lot of times we do this in sports, and you visualize yourself taking the the three-pointer, whatever it is, you know, it's as if you're doing it in real life. You could be laying on your couch because in your mind, in your mind's eye, you're firing, even those those motor neurons, you're firing it and you're training it. Mm -hmm. So when you Every day you set an intention to change and you write as if you already created that change in your life. In that moment, you're creating a mental rehearsal. And the more moments you string together of doing that, the more days you journal and the more days you practice creating that change later in your day, you're helped because you reminded yourself once. So for me, I woke up. My intention is say to be more conscious because I did that. That might just increase the likelihood that as those hours of that day roll by, I remembered that I was going to practice that. And now I might practice. Mm -hmm. And I share all of this because while it's an incredible tool and I suggest everyone goes out and gets it, you can individualize it, pick what you're working on, work toward firing those new neurons and creating the mental rehearsal, creating the circumstances. I'm here to tell you it is not magic. Yeah. We don't close the journal right, <laughs> and then morph into that person who does yeah. that thing. We just increased our chances of doing that. And then we still have to show up for ourselves later that day. And if I didn't that day, that's okay. I'll remind myself again tomorrow that I'm trying to be conscious. And then maybe by the 6th, 7th, 12th, six months later, mm-hmm. maybe I'm remembering consistently. And then that's why when people ask me, how many days do I have to journal? There's no magic number. Yeah. This is a tool I still use it. Le- years later, I change. I stick with my one habit that I'm creating for an extended period of time until it does become natural. Exactly. And so before I know it, I am remembering to be conscious. And then I can shift and change and do another topic. However, you know what? I might have to revisit some topics because like what? we were talking about, I don't reach those levels and secure myself in for a new yeah. ride, Yeah. right? It's a daily living, breathing instrument. And so we can tailor it. We can individualize it. I will probably continue to use it 
for the foreseeable future into forever. Because for me now, it's that habit. Every day I'm with myself. For me, it takes me maybe five minutes. I write it. I'm in that mindset. I'm firing it up. And then I live it. 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 I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, you're also coming out with a book soon. Is this not true? This is true. So I just submitted the first draft for editorial review yesterday morning. So hypothetical release release date, all things COVID go well, which I'm sending up to the universe that it will, will be March 2021. So I am so grateful to have this opportunity and I'm really looking forward the, to this being a more comprehensive overview of how to do the work, how to heal holistically, kind of from start to finish. So while Instagram has been an incredible gift that has allowed me to connect with humans like yourself, to begin to put this work out there, what this book is going to offer. Also for those people not on Instagram, it can right be something kind of more palpable, but it's going to offer the whole, right? The whole story more or less from start to finish. I'm so excited for it to be in the world finally. That is so cool, man. All right. Well, we're going to end this episode with a question that we asked every single one of our guests to this point. And that is, what is your definition of medspiration? Medspiration. I love this. Now it's becoming empowerment, even in, and I know you coming from a very traditional field in a lot of ways. Empowerment is a little bit of a of a revolutionary idea in terms yeah. of medspiration and medscape. You know what I mean? Because we, we aren't in the times now where there is one holder uh, is of wisdom, wisdom or of knowledge. Yeah. Right? And they, they don't wear a white coat and they don't they don't necessarily know. We, you and I, we have a lot of training. We have a lot of experience. We have a lot of knowledge. It doesn't mean yeah. it applies, though, to everyone in every situation. Right. Mm-hmm. So my definition now is becoming one of empowerment, which I think is the conversation, essentially the theme woven underneath all of everything that we're talking about. So even in traditional fields, empowering humans to be a participant in their discussion, in their story and in their future. Dr. Nicole LaPere, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been one of the greatest conversations I've ever had. So I, I really appreciate your time and energy. I am so honored. Thank you. I'm, I could have talked to you forever. This was amazing. I know, thank, you. thank you for yeah. taking the time to connect and for sharing your audience with me. This was incredible. Nah, thank you. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to be the best possible version of ourselves, no matter what life throws at us, mentally, physically, and spiritually. As always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and to do something med-spiring.